listening to the Rainmaking Podcast. Hosted by high-stakes headhunter, author, and professional speaker, Scott Love. This is Scott Love, and thanks for joining me on the Rainmaking Podcast. Have you ever noticed that when you're on the phone with a client or giving a presentation, you need to improvise how you communicate? Well, our guest today is Dion Flynn, who is an expert on improv. Dion has been cited by Oprah Magazine as one of our favorite creative thinkers. He's an improviser, a comedian, an actor, and a writer, and even an Army veteran. He's best known as Barack Obama and other characters with over 100 appearances on The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon. If Dave Chappelle and Eckhart Tolle had a son who did improv, it would be Dion. He is an expert in fun and innovative ways to help people connect with themselves and others. I think you're going to get some great ideas out of our show today. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Rainmaking Podcast. I've got a special guest today. His name is Dion Flynn, and we're going to talk about the basic tools of improv are the basics for successful human relations. Dion, thanks for joining the show today. Scott, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. It's an honor to have you here, to have somebody that's kind of a little bit outside of the normal day-to-day business people that we have. Tell us about your background. What did you do when you started your career? And then kind of tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now, and then we'll kind of dig into the topic. Sure, that's great. Scott, I'm best known for having played Barack Obama for about 50 appearances on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. I also have performed lots of other comedic characters, been on lots of different shows, and I've been a comedy writer and a producer of comedic material for a long time. I have a, you know formal classical acting training from NYU's graduate acting program. So I understand the rigors of really getting deeply into your craft. And then when I got out of there, I did Shakespeare in the Park and a number of things. And then I fell into the improv community. The improv community is sort of spontaneous theater. Make it up as you go. Right. And uh, it's very different than the rigorous, you know, learning a Shakespearean text and you're studying iambic pentameter and you're delivering it uh, word for word. Very different than when you get in and you become the actor, writer, and director and, you, and you're making it up as you go in scenes with, with other people that you may or may not know very well. But it's very, very fun to do the improv world and it's very helpful to have that grounded classical training. So I started to bring those two things together. And lo and behold, one thing led to the other. And I found myself in these corporate environments, you know, being an actor, trying to make a living for yourself any way you can. I was needed to do these corporate gigs to to play a role while another organization did some sort of role play and helping people in business have difficult conversations with each other, et cetera, et cetera. And what I began to discover was that there was a real hunger in some of these more staid and serious professions for the playful, off-the-cuff, spontaneous, and fun skills that you know we theatrical people, particularly improvisers, mm-hmm. bring to bear. And the people really wanted to get into it and that they had a respect for how truly codified and serious this play was. So uh, then I started to you know, find opportunities to bring it to different organizations. And once I started playing on national television, people would just reach out to me. Right, right. Say, hey, can you come and speak? And can you be this character or that character at a thing? And then, you know, I found myself just being helpful wherever I could. Where my passion is, 
I love to perform. I love to make people laugh. I really <laughs> love that. The other passion that I have is I love to, for example, let's say last summer, I was with a bunch of lawyers down in North Carolina and we were doing improv. We did improv workshops and to watch lawyers who don't necessarily <laughs> have permission to play. Right, right. I right. can see that they don't have internal permission to play. And they want to be really careful. They're like, wait a minute now, what do I do? What right. do I have? You know, and, and for me to be able to just pick out this thing that's holding them back and that thing that's holding them back, to get them back in touch with their natural, spontaneous, playful self, and to watch the joy, to watch the creativity come forward. You know you're dealing with a major intellect when you're dealing with a right. good attorney. And to watch that intellect get married you know, and, and, and reunited with playfulness and spontaneity is a real joy for me. That's great. I mean, because the legal community, it's hypersensitive to what's everybody going to think about me? How's it going to affect my brand and reputation? And our client's going to find out that I'm making a fool of myself with Dion Flynn and <laughs> learning, learning, learning improv. Well, what happens in improv stays in improv. You know, it's a very... <laughs> It's a very safe environment, too. That's the other thing, another specialty I have. I think maybe, honestly, Scott, being on television, it gives me a kind of authority to be the expert in this oh, area. Absolutely. And it lets people take a risk with me that maybe they wouldn't take in other, in other cases. That's right. Because yeah. I'm an idiot. You know, I'm an idiot on TV. <laughs> I show a reel of me being an idiot on television in tight spandex or whatever I'm doing. And I relate it to ways that make it you know, easier for us to just be in ourselves, be in our bodies. Here's one really important reason why it's more than just uh, silly fun. Sure. When a person is under stress, in an artificially stressful situation, I call it ass. You're making an ass of yourself. <laughs> artificially stressful situation. Okay, great. Which I put you in when you're in an improv scene or whatever. Your body tightens up. You think you're about to be killed. You go into every physical reaction you'd have if you were being attacked by a tiger at a, you know, at a, at a watering primal, hole. Primal, primal instincts. Exactly. Right. And so you know, what I try to give people are a couple of simple tools to help you remain receptive to what's coming at you from outside and receptive to what's coming at you from inside, your own inspiration. Mm -hmm under an artificially stressful, you know, situation. Let's kind of, I wanted to kind of get some definitions here. Yeah. When you talk about improv, and this is relating to professionals that are in stressful situations, whether it's they're making a pitch to sell work, they're meeting with the prospective client, they're speaking at a conference, those sorts of things. How would you define what improv is? And then how would that help them in those artificially stressful situations? All the examples you just gave, I would boil those down to any situation where I didn't know what was going to happen next. Got it. Okay. Right? Because that's what triggers the fear response. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't control it. And we come into contact with that a thousand times a day if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, you know. And so whenever you come in contact with something, you don't know how it's going to unfold. There are lots of tools that help an improv scene go well. So we practice really heightened listening, mm -hmm. a kind of listening which is completely present. We practice breathing in a way that helps us let go of our you know, prior agenda. And you might be shocked, Scott, to see how many times when somebody's in an improv scene or one of these artificial situations, 
And the first thing that they do is deprive themselves of the thing they need the most, which is oxygen. Right. The shoulders go up. These are very basic things, right? People always want to get on to, I know that, but give me this overarching philosophical concept that's going to carry me through. It really comes down to being inside your own body in the moment. Even if you're dealing with things that you have prepared, you've got, you know, boxes and boxes full of legal briefs and things, information that you've tried to integrate to be ready for the big day. But in order to access that in a way that's going to communicate with a jury, that's going to not put people off when you're trying to connect with them in a sales situation. If they can't get past your individual tension on this almost subconscious way, they can't hear what you're going to say because they're nervous for you. They're put off. You're in fear. So it triggers the other, the other people in the herd. It triggers their fear. So relaxed readiness above all is what I train people in. So let me, let me stop you right there, Dion. You've given me about four or five really good ideas. Relaxed readiness. I love that. And that reminds me of this one YouTube video I was watching. I was Googling some concepts about confidence and things like that. And whoever the trainer was, he had a video clip of Clooney, George Clooney. And he said, one of the reasons that George Clooney is so attractive as a person is because he seems comfortable with himself. Because he's comfortable with himself, other people can relax and they enjoy just watching him perform. What, what do you think about that? I think that's great. And I completely agree with it. I think we are definitely drawn to the entertainment professionals that we are drawn to because they're exciting or because they're inviting or because they're relaxed in their own skin. I mean, mm-hmm. I think of Ben Kingsley. I mm-hmm. mean, there's, you're not going to find an actor who's more relaxed in his own body than that dude. And he's very simple with what he does, but very compelling. And so what I want to talk about is is you, you make a really, really wonderful point. And it brings me to this idea. So this is not about acting in the sense of let's layer on some falseness, some false masks on top of all this anxiety and agita that I have going on so that nobody sees it. Right. It's not that. It's about coming into contact with myself and all that I'm really afraid of that's churning around in there so that I can be with it. If you breathe, like let's say, what if you and I literally, I know we're on you know, radio as it were, but if you and I breathe, let's just breathe together right now, okay? okay. Like three breaths, okay? And I'd like to invite the listeners to just do that right now. Now, some thoughts came up for me while I was breathing. Oh my gosh, we can't do that. We can't have dead air. This is going to have to be edited out. Like my own panic response (laughs) still comes up and I'm very much in touch with it. You can't do this. You can't take this time to do this. You have to keep the plate spinning, but it's not true. What I've discovered is what many relaxed, you know, professionals have discovered And that's that I will be much more effective if I allow things to totally collapse. Now, okay, okay, okay. So listen. So when I'm in these workshops, lawyers in particular, but also medical professionals tend to have this as well. Okay. They can't stand it when I say, let's fail. (laughs) At first. Right. What I'm saying, because I, I say it all the time, I'll say, let's fail together. Here we go. Come on up, step in, let's fail. Because I'll say, you know, it'll be 100 people in the room. And I'll say, 
who's ready to get up and, and fail. And it really jars with some people's sensibility. Because what I mean is, let's challenge that inhibiting thought, which is stopping you from coming forward as yourself, which is, I'm going to fail and something terrible is going to happen. So instead, we reverse it and I welcome it. I say, we're going to fail at this. You don't know what you're doing. Let's get out here. And then what happens is, when it's effective, people are able to say, you know what? Yeah, let me see. Let me just at least look at my relationship to failure, you know? How do you think most people feel about that when they hear you say that? I think that people get, um, some people get angry. You know, don't ask me to fail. They think what I mean is to make a fool of yourself or to diminish yourself in some way or to trigger my inner shame or something in front of people for, for the delight of all. Right. But really what I mean is, let's take a look at all of that resistance and terror of what might happen if I don't do exactly what I think I'm going to do. What if I surprise myself? And then what you do is, you know, to the people for whom that message sort of takes root, uh, they then have a newfound interest in themselves as spontaneous creators. Mm -hmm. And there's a little more space in there for, for exploration and for and for um, learning too. Totally for learning, yes. So let me kind of uh, synthesize some of the things that you're saying here. I like what you're saying. I think it applies directly to those in professional services, especially when they're on the spot. They've got to give a presentation. They're speaking at a conference. And you put them in a similar scenario with that artificial stress. They're in front of their peers. They have to make a fool of themselves. They have to fail with improv. And it's almost like, when you strip away any sort of pretense that people have and you show them for who they are, it's vulnerable. I'm sure that it has to be in a safe spot for them if they're with people that they know, if they're with colleagues and peers. I mean, I know that I know I talk to lawyers all day. I know a lot of them, they're guarded and, and untrusting people because that's how they're trained to think. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that in itself is an inhibitor for them reaching their full potential. And it's interesting to me is that a lot of law firms I work with, they say, oh, we're entrepreneurial, which I know that isn't true because entrepreneurialism, it implies risk. And law firms aren't all about risk. The firms themselves really, uh, I think they really uh, suffocate a lot of the potential of people because of that, that fear of failure that people have. So let me kind of ask you this in, in terms of kind of getting some forward motion with this one thing that you mentioned to me I thought was significant was heightened listening. So when people are on the stage, when you're doing your workshops for law firms and companies and medical organizations, and you've got professionals on the stage that are highly credentialed, they've got to make a fool of themselves. They're going to make a fool of themselves. But what, what, do you think, what do you think are some of the things that they learn from this? And then kind of talk more about heightened listening. I want, to, I want to go down that path also. But first, what do you think are some of the things that they're learning from these experiences that you have with them? Well, you know, when you were talking earlier, something really popped out, and that is the making a fool of yourself in the workshops never really actually happens. What I end up pointing out and what we end up seeing together is that 98% of that was the fear that it was going to happen. Right, I see. And, and the fear that it was going to happen prevents people from stepping in and learning a new thing about themselves. So we point this out, we address that it's already there, 
this is a very fine point because I say, let's, you know, let's fail. Let's, and what I'm saying by let's fail is I'm going to point out here that most of you fear that you're going to fail right now and that might be inhibiting you. And then come to find out once we give permission to fail, they are able to step through that little portal and then find that they not only don't fail, but that they excel and the environments are tremendously supportive. I mean, I give lots of instructions about applause and, you know, we give artificial feeling applause. It feels artificial in the beginning to applaud because everybody's reticent. Everybody's looking around. Do I buy into this? I don't know if I'm going to do this. And but by the end, the, pl- the applause is so spontaneous and so healing. It's very healing. These are children that I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with mm-hmm. the inner playful child in each person. That's who I care about. That's who I know I need to reach. That's who I know can change the ship of an organization or an individual. And you were talking about the larger organization and its fear of taking entrepreneurial risk. And that's not going to change in one improv workshop, okay? However, if you give each individual an opportunity to work out in this gym of taking risk, seeing that they can live through it, seeing not only that they can live through it, but that they can access a really creative, fun, rewarding to the brain, the dopamine begins to flow when you get that applause or when you discover the line I needed in my scene was right there when I needed it you gain a faith and a confidence that what you need will be there when you need it. Mm -hmm. And so I just, it's like I'm a boxing trainer in a way. I'm just in there and I just want to develop people. And then what they do with the advances to their stamina and their courage will be utilized by them. You know, I don't dictate what that will be, but you will have more faith you will be a better listener. You will have more confidence in yourself. And, you know, who couldn't use those things? I like that. I like the fact that it's almost like this is your boot camp for putting them in situations of stress. And you and I both, having been in active duty in the U.S. military, we know that you have to train for those scenarios because the way you train is how you're going to behave when you're in not necessarily an artificial stress situation, but a real one <laughs> where there's, there's physical danger around you. Perfect example. Well, perfect example with one little line. You remember probably from basic training when we had to do a live fire exercise right. where they're shooting tracer bullets over your head and you're crawling and everything in your body feels like you're under fire, you know, and you know, you're crawling along and, and you make it. Anyway, I can't draw, put it this way, in my workshops, we do not fire any bullets. That right. That's good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, one thing I got from what you said before, which I'm definitely going to remember is the breathing, because I, I believe in that and I've learned that from sports. I've learned that from when I'm in a poker hand, you know, I just sit and I relax and I breathe and that helps you to relax and you're able to perform and think that way. But you also talked about heightened listening. Give me, give me some... Uh, suggestions. How can we become heightened in our listening? What do you think things are, are that people learn in the workshops related to that? Well, one, one version of the anatomy of, of careful listening is knowing that you're a bad listener. Most people don't think they have a listening problem or that their listening can be deepened. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you that it can. It's an art that 
can be deepened throughout your entire life. Okay. I remember I was in graduate school acting. I had the best and the brightest teachers and they sat me down for these circle evaluations. You've got 12 teachers sitting around and it's just you. And one of the things they first said to me was, one of the first observations we have of you is that you don't listen. And I said, excuse me, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't quite catch that. Uh, <laughs> I, what? I don't listen. I didn't even know, Scott, I didn't even know it was a thing. And I'm in this prestigious graduate acting program and I didn't want to lose the position. So I went and started to get books and read and learn. Now, this is years before I even went into the improv community and began to train. And you know what? It's a thing. So you trained yourself on how to become a better listener. You actually studied this. I absolutely studied it. And, and what I want to bring forward to you is that I didn't even know it was a thing. I just thought listening was, it just, I can hear, therefore I'm listening. No, listening has so many levels to it. One of them is the courage to not prepare what I'm going to say next instead of listening to what you are saying now. It, that involves a big emptiness. There's a big feeling of emptiness and I won't have what I need unless I prepare my answer. Wow. You know, I as you and exactly for, what for, you're saying. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you and I right now throughout the last 20 minutes or so, 15 have been listening very carefully to each other, right? As as radio professionals, as podcast professionals, I can hear when you are ready to speak and I'll back out. Right. And then you can hear what I'm going and we duck out, right? right? And there's very careful listening going on there, which I'll draw the listener's attention to right now. And Scott and I have never met, and yet we're doing that very carefully. There's one layer of that's proof that you can get better at listening because we're doing that. We haven't discussed it, but we're both doing it in a very purposeful way. Second, it's the cultivation of the idea that other people are valuable. When you're smart, you're cursed. I was always in gifted and advanced classes and things like that. And it was a bit of a curse because I began to think that nobody had anything valuable to tell me. Hmm. And I really didn't trust people. I didn't trust leaders and teachers and anybody. And I would trust reading. I would trust time-honored literatures that were vetted through the generations. But a lack of, it was an arrogance. It was an arrogance and a myopia that I thought nobody had anything value, valuable to say. So I want to shatter that for anybody that shares that impediment with this. Even if the other person doesn't have the cont- any content that you don't already know, if they get the sense that you are present for what they're saying, the communication that's below the words will improve. Because the person before you feels like you're being responsive to them. Not an act, not, you know, dress for success. I'm talking about a genuine energetic openness to what this other person is bringing. Trust me, if you want something to go poorly in a business sales situation, be rude and treat the people that are not the decision makers like they're not important. Right. You know, something you mentioned, which I think needs to be emphasized was getting ready to say my next thing after Dion finishes or my, <laughs> my prospect finishes or my prospects talking to me. I've got to be ready with point number two and number three because I really want to impress them. And I think it's, it's almost as if you remove your own personal agenda from the sales scenario. And this is my own philosophy of having taught. I used to own a training company where I, I literally taught recruiters all over the world over 
4,500 recruiting firms bought my content and I'm not doing that anymore. But by teaching people the business and how to sell, I learned that you've got to remove all self-interest from the conversation. And you have to walk away if you can't deliver value. And that's why my sales training would never be good for timeshare sales presentation, you know, <laughs> because it's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily creating value, it's closing the sale. But in professional services, the only way you make a sale is by showing the value. And if you remove self-interest from that and you focus squarely on solving that problem of your prospect, then they pick up on that. And one thing I did, the same thing. I remember I had problems with communication and part of it was the listening part. And what I learned was to help me become a better listener, I learned how to become a better question asker. Mm. And when I got into legal, I'd worked in other niches and I got into legal about 11 years ago and I didn't know anything about legal. I didn't know anything. So in all of my sales meetings with clients, with big law firm leaders, I found out I was, it was easier for me to sell because I couldn't say anything because I didn't know anything to say. Mm. And, and, I, and I learned that through asking intelligent questions, they made a judgment about me based on the questions that I asked. And I was just asking them because I didn't know what, what to say. And, and I found that it was almost a paradox that by asking the questions, I earned their trust, uh, the relationship deepened, but I focused on moving the conversation to the emotional context of how that problem affects them on a personal and emotional level. And by asking the questions, I was able to kind of move it into that area, which was that was their intrinsic motivation because everybody you sell to has a personal agenda behind it, even if you're selling to a business. So, so that's kind of what I learned about heightened listening. And I can definitely see how when people are on the stage in your classes, that sensation is at its peak. And then they have to learn. I've got to breathe. People are watching me. I don't want to be made uh, to look like a fool. I'm going to give that up. And as they go through that, I'm sure they realize, well, gosh, I don't look like a fool. I'm actually getting this. And then they start paying attention. Let me ask you this. I want to kind of go into some of the applications of what you do. Tell us, uh, tell us about the type of work that you do, Dion. Those people listening, if they're with a law firm, if they're with a professional services firm or a company and they want to get their people some training, what are some of the things that you're doing with your clients right now, Dion? Well, you know, ever since the, you know, the coronavirus has descended upon us, things have changed and I've been online. I've been leading groups online. Uh, I lead like a weekly group called the Improviser's Mindset on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. That's a, you know, a drop-in thing that you can find at my website, uh, DionFlynn.com. But what I was doing before and what I think we're going to be returning to probably, I don't know, whenever, you know, we get back to meeting in person is I will meet with, I'll give a keynote, I'll talk about how improvisation actually came into my life and kind of saved it. Mm -hmm. uh, this idea, the basics, the rudiments of improvisation. And then either that day or the next day, we'll all go into workshops with me. Right. And they'll become each other's scene partners, the participants. And we're dealing with the, the the material we're dealing with is made up. So there are theatrical scenes. So it's like a, you'll see a mother and father scene. You'll see a dentist and a, a patient scene. We're not dealing. We're not dredging up people's deep personal information. We're mm -hmm. we're playing. Mm -hmm. But in the playing and in the debriefing, your personal blockages come to the surface immediately, 
and the group will sort of give feedback that's facilitated by me or, you know, one of the other workshop leaders. And we begin to see, oh, you know what? Oh, I see. Oh, I got it. I, I block there all the time. I'm not actually listening. Did everybody see Tom? Was, how did you feel? Did you feel Tom's listening was open? No. And then Tom, and then Tom gets to adjust and try again, adjust and try again. And Tom has a breakthrough in his ability to connect with a scene partner. And the basic tools of improv are yes and. I won't go into them right now. I won't try to teach it. But this, this idea of what I see before me, I accept it as it is. I don't try to change what it is. I don't think this should be different. If I walk into a scene with you, Scott, and I say, Scott, here we are in Antarctica. We're both penguins. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you would say back to me in the yes and spirit, yes, that's right, Dion. We are penguins and our fish supply has run low. Good. Then you and I are now two penguins and we can have a scene. We know who we are to each other. It's silly. We've got fish problems. We've got penguin problems. And we can all enjoy the scene. If I say to you, Scott, you start the scene. I say, Scott, I, I'm a penguin. You're a penguin. We're here in Antarctica. And you say, no, actually, I'm a doctor and we're on Fifth Avenue. You've negated it and the whole <laughs> scene falls apart, right? Right, right? You'll get a laugh. The same laugh, the same expellation of air that you just gave is, is what the audience would do. But you'd only get that single laugh. It's the laugh of, oh, my God, they just bailed out on each other. I wouldn't want to be up there in their situation. But the other more satisfying experience would be to build this thing, yes and, yes and, yes and, together, and to watch what can come out of a yes and when two people are following the same basic creative principles of collaboration. It blows people's minds. It blows participants' minds if they've never had you know, any contact with it. And then what they do is they go back to the office and they talk, they talk that day. Oh, you remember the scene where, you know, Jenny was a deadhead and they were at the, they were in a van driving across the country. Wasn't that hilarious when Bob, you know, but moreover, there's a sense of, do I say yes and to things or do I say no, but do, am I always blocking the offers that are coming at me through fear, constriction, uh, you know, limited imagination, whatever. Am I? Just that question, am I doing that? Do I need work on my listening? And what happens is these workshops surface these things in such a gentle way. Let me give you one final example. You bet. Another whole part of my work is with recovering people, people in recovery, people that are off of addictive processes and substances. Uh, I've been sober myself for over two decades. And it's a big part of my life. So I'll go into these rehabs and things and I'll bring these improv tools. Addiction is basically no. It's basically N-O. It's saying no to life. I'm going to go to this process or this addiction, whether it be, you know, all the addictions, food, sex, pornography, drugs, alcohol, all of them. They're saying yes to this one very limited process or substance addiction and saying no to all of the unknown. Well, limited thinking that comes out of workaholism can actually be the same except for it's sanctioned by everybody. Oh, he's busy. Oh, they're successful. But they don't realize there's an addiction going on there that's shutting people down to new ideas. Okay. So when I go into these rehabs, I mean, these people, you couldn't find people in a more vulnerable position. They don't have their old go-tos. Right. Their old thing that they use to always deal with life and its unknowns and its vicissitudes. And so I'm showing them that 
ever since they were children, they had the basic skills to play in a present way with what life offered. And by making that concrete, by bringing it forward, turning up the dial on those innate skills, which maybe have been ignored for two decades, people are walking out with really solid life skills. Now, if you're not in a rehab, you're like, you know, a lot of people are, they think, well, I'm doing great. I got a job. I'm doing stuff. But I would put forward, because I've seen it, that there are people that are functioning very well, making very nice livings, that are hamstrung when it comes to putting down the the gadgets, putting down the caffeine or the distractions or whatever the thing is that they go to, and simply turning to their fellow man and saying, what is this I see here before me? (laughs) Who is this stranger in the next cubicle? It's terrifying. This is insightful. And I think this goes way beyond just selling work and getting client relationships. It's all about developing a richness of life and true fulfillment. Let me kind of summarize this. What are three action steps people can take to kind of integrate some of the ideas that you mentioned? And by the way, folks, we're going to put Dion's links to the show notes so you can reach out to him that way. But what what are some three action steps that you'd give to people to kind of synthesize this and get them started integrating some of the concepts that you've mentioned? Sure, Scott. Just to name three, how about listening? You know, notice, just notice, just notice. Am I listening? Does this person listen? Do I feel like this person I'm talking to is listening to me? Mm, Right. When I feel listened to, what is it that the other person is doing that is causing me to feel that way? Just begin to do a little self-inquiry around listening, both. Okay, great. How others, right? Breathing. Notice your breathing. Most people are trained to breathe quite shallowly, actually. Non-professional breathers, as, as I would call it. We breathe in the chest, we breathe in the upper cavity, you know, and, and that's it. That's enough. But notice this. Breathe down into your lower back. Notice that your lower back can actually expand with a nice deep breath in through the nose. Send the air down as if you're breathing with your thighs is what I like to tell people. That's great. And then explore. Explore things. Open your mind a little bit. And um, if anything that I've said, any Googleable term uh, has, has landed in your mind, give yourself a chance to just explore it without any results in mind. Just go down the rabbit hole. See what it brings you. If breathing jumped out, if uh, you know, improv jumped out at you, you know, let yourself explore. Because exploration is different than confirmation. You know, when we're searching to explore, it's open-ended and it's playful and it's fun and expansive. When we're looking to just validate our theory, it's a very different kind of research. So explore rather than seek to validate my own opinions. This is great, Dion. I really appreciate what you've shared today. I think it's significant. I think it's meaningful. I think it's going to help people professionally, but also, and I think more importantly, as you know personally, Because what you're talking about is really at the core essence of what we're all about, which is our fulfillment in life and being able to reach that. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Like I said, we're going to put all your information on the show notes. I hope that people listening can reach out to you, can at least go to your sites, see what your offerings are. And hopefully people, and I'm sure they would be reaching out to you uh, when the world heals, have you back into their their law firms and their corporate retreats. And uh, you can make a difference in front of people. And until then, Don, thank you so much for being here on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Take care. You too. 
Thank you for listening to the Rainmaking Podcast. For more information about our recruiting services for international law firms, visit our website at attorneysearchgroup.com. To inquire about having Scott speak at your next convention, conference, sales meeting, or executive retreat, visit therainmakingpodcast.com.